Good afternoon, wonderful people. Hope you had a great weekend and a wonderful Easter. Thanks for joining us today in our New York Workers' Compensation webinar. This is Greg Lois. I'm glad you're here with us today. Uh, we have got an interesting topic to discuss about. We also have some interesting sort of firm news or a trading offer I like to talk about with you today. So I'm going to talk about that quickly at the beginning. Um, and then I'm going to talk about our topic, which is the defense, the jurisdictional defense of not my employee. Okay, don't know this person. Stop bringing workers' comp claims against me. Uh, that's the defense that we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to talk briefly about uh, semi-recent case law, and then I'm going to open this up for questions. And I'm really hoping for some great questions today. Uh, it doesn't have to be on today's topic. It can be on any topic in New York workers' compensation law. Uh, so feel free to use that question box. You can type in questions while I'm talking. I can see the questions pop up, and I will answer as many questions as I can at the end. I will not say your full name, but I will say your first name so you know I'm addressing your question. I will read your question for everybody in today's audience, uh, and also for those who are going to watch this later on video playback, uh, and then I'll do my best to answer your question. Uh, if we get too many questions and I can't get to them all, I will email you or call you with answers to your individual questions. So if you're here today, it's because you know uh, this is the place to come. Uh, Lois Law Firm, we love training. I think I have like the heart of a teacher. And I like talking about workers' comp stuff. I am passionate about it. And so are my partners. And so are the team leaders here. And on the first Monday of the month, uh, we'd have a construction webinar and Tashia Razul, who's my partner and leads the complex claims practice here, she talks about construction claims in New York, primarily OSIP, CSIP, coverage issues, that kind of stuff. Second Monday of the month, we talk about risk transfer. It's one of the most powerful ways we have to reduce exposure in our workers' compensation cases. And so for that reason, we have an entire webinar just on that topic. Yeah, this is the third Monday of the month. Um, uh, this is uh, our New York workers' compensation webinar. And the fourth Monday of the month, we do a webinar on a New Jersey workers' compensation topic. So that's sort of our monthly schedule. But uh, what I've discovered recently is uh, in the last six months or so, maybe last year, the great resignation has impacted all of us. And I have had so many clients and so many uh, referral partners who have told me, hey, Craig, we have just, we've lost so many adjusters, we've lost so many risk professionals. And unfortunately, we've lost a lot of people who had great experience, who've been uh, adjusting and handling workers' compensation cases for a long time. And in some cases, we're now replacing them with people who are maybe a little less experienced or seasoned uh, with workers' compensation. And it's just felt like the last year I've spent so much time doing workers' comp 101s uh, and coming in and doing individual trainings at clients. And so what we've kind of done is put that together, we packaged it up, uh, and we've created a training course uh, which we're going to call Workers' Comp 101 or Workers' Comp Basics. But it's really a comprehensive workers' comp training course. Um, and uh, it's going to start with the very basics, like what is workers' compensation and what's unique about New York workers' compensation. It's going to go all through the handling and life cycle of a case. And it's going to conclude with issues on trials, appeals, post-closing, and settlement issues. So it really is soup to nuts, the whole enchilada, the whole thing. It's all workers' comp uh, beginning to end. I've recorded this presentation, uh, and it's about six hours long, and it's, um, it's divided into seven segments. And it really does follow uh, the handbook that we've created here. So it's, it's sort of a video companion guide to the handbook 
soup to nuts intended for the person who doesn't know anything about workers' compensation. And we've uh, created this as a video-only course, and we have also have a live component to it as well. So we are also offering this as a live series of webinars, sort of like this format, except for much more text and case law heavy, and really intended to introduce uh, topics in workers' compensation, and really introduce the new person to how we defend claims in workers' compensation world. And I look at it more than just the litigation world, which I talk about in these monthly webinars. I really am looking at this from the perspective of the insured risk uh, or for the self-insured employer. And I think this course would be very useful for anyone uh, from the adjuster level on up. Now, it is also pending accreditation um, with the New York um, Continuing Legal Education Board. And if you're an attorney and you take this class, you will get six hours of CLA credit for attending. And again, we're offering this in a pre-recorded format, so we have it all created and we can send you private video links uh, along with the slides and all the materials. So this could be a self-study program. And we're also offering a live program. And we've got three weeks of dates set out uh, where we're offering this course either in a three-day or two-day format. Six hours over two days is a lot of uh, training. Um, and we're also offering some Q&A sessions. So uh, if you want to do the self-study video format and then just jump in with us for the live Q&A, you can do that as well. So if you're interested in this, and I really intend this for you industry professionals out there, our clients who are uh, listening to this webinar, if you think there's someone um, at your organization or on your team who would benefit from this, uh, please let me know. Just send me an email. Uh, my email address is glois at loisllc.com and just say, hey, I'm interested. And then I will send you further information in the sign-up forms. Um, this is my second session today, by the way, teaching this webinar. The first session, there were a lot of questions about this, and the number one question is, hey, Greg, is this free? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. Um, just, uh, just as we're putting on these webinar series each week, just as we hand out those handbooks to you every year, uh, this is absolutely free, no strings attached. Uh, it's our intention to um, help educate the community. And I just know a lot of my clients and a lot of us out there have new to teammates, less experienced, maybe not an, as many seasons with workers' compensation as we have, and they really could use a solid overview and then the opportunity to ask questions. Um, so this is a very intensive course. It's very comprehensive. Six hours is a lot of time. Uh, so I hope you like this face because you'll be staring at it a lot if you come to live courses. The video courses are just audio narration over slides. Uh, but we do think that it is a, a really good way to get you know your team up to speed and something we could do to help you. So. That's a little bit about the training. If you're interested, again, just send me an email at glois at loislc.com and I'm happy to send you more information. The live courses start this Monday, which is April 28th. So the live courses start Monday afternoon. And again, uh, you're invited to that as are the members of your team. All right, let's jump into today's topic. And you know, this is one of those topics where sometimes we think of it as, Who's an employee? That's easy, Greg. I know who this is. This is silly. Uh, what, what, what is, this is even something I worry about. But hopefully I'm going to trigger some ideas here. and We'll talk about some of the practical ins and outs of examining who is an employee and whether or not this person really is entitled to workers' compensation benefits. And, and do you maybe have a jurisdictional defense in your case? So employee is defined in the statute, section two, subsection three, and it basically just says anybody who provides a service to a for-profit business 
can be deemed an employee of that business. It's really kind of a very big, broad definition. And of course, uh, this becomes hugely problematic. You know, anybody who's on our property who's providing services, is the UPS deliveryman my, my employee? I mean, obviously not, right? There's also problems with uh, determining who's an employee because it doesn't sort of matter what it says on your pay stub. So it doesn't matter if you think that you're an independent contractor. It doesn't matter that the employer has a different business or tax identification name. Workers' compensation is not going to sort of look at the employee's tax status uh, or, for example, uh, whether or not they're legally allowed to be employed in this country. So I'm looking at all you pre-citizens or your undocumented illegal workers. Workers' compensation says even if someone's illegal, even if they're not on the books, even if there is no pay stub, they could still be your employee uh, for the purposes of workers' compensation law and for them to be entitled to workers' compensation benefits. Uh, th this is really intended, by the way, to discourage off-the-books employment and illegal employments, for example. Uh, that's what it's meant to discourage. Uh, but it really just makes it means that you know defining who your employee is or could be can be a little bit uh, more trickier. Uh, I'm also going to say that employment in New York uh, includes any out-of-state employee who are actually injured in New York. They will be deemed an employee of yours in New York under the workers' compensation law. So it's not a defense, or it's not a jurisdictional offense anyway, to say, oh, well, this person uh, was worked out of our New Jersey plant and uh, lived in New Jersey and resided in New Jersey and was hired out of New Jersey. If the accident happens in New York, that's it. They're going to be deemed a New York employee, regardless of whether or not uh, they were regularly in New York. That's going to be enough. So maybe it's an easier thing to do is to look at who is not an employee, right? And the statute is pretty specific. That does have some carve-outs in the statute as to who can be left out of workers' comp coverage or who is not going to be deemed an employee automatically. So the first one is a student intern. That would be an unpaid student intern. Uh, would generally not be considered an employee, and it specifically says in the statute that they're not your employee. Now, if you pay your interns, guess what? They're your employees uh, because you are now paying someone who's providing a service to you, but a student intern generally not. Second, a volunteer. Even this can be tricky, by the way, and I'm going to get to that in the next uh, slide or two, but uh, generally speaking, a volunteer will not be found to be an employee. Next, a sole proprietor or an owner of a business can exempt themselves from coverage under the workers' compensation uh, uh, policy. Statute says sole proprietor, but it actually applies to multiple owners of a uh, single uh, employer. Um, they can all exempt themselves. Now, I want you to be very careful and cautious about sole proprietors or owners who have always left themselves off their workers' compensation policy or elected not to cover themselves. And uh, when they're in their late 60s and they're decided to retire, all of a sudden they put themselves on their workers' compensation policy and then have their unwitnessed accident, which leaves them completely and totally disabled. That's a red flag, uh, particularly where you see that it's a sole proprietor who's elected to cover themselves for workers' compensation and then has a sort of end-of-career injury. They've tried to turn their workers' compensation policy into a retirement policy, so let's be very, very mindful of that. Uh, the last group it, that is exempted from uh, needing coverage is independent contractors, right? And, okay, we all kind of understand, like, oh, an independent contractor, they're, they're not an employee, sure. But the case law has developed in New York such that the definition of independent contractor has become quite narrow. I'm going to talk about that in a future slide. Um, the other thing I want to be very specific about is truckers. 
uh, truckers that have their own bill of lading and their own Department of Transportation identification numbers, generally speaking, um, that have their own insurance coverages as well, typically an occupational accident policy, will generally be found not to be an employee of an employer in New York. All right, so let's talk a little bit about how tricky this can get. Let's talk about volunteers. As you can see on this list, it's my second thing on the list, uh, who is not an employee would be a volunteer, but are there even moments when a volunteer can be can claim that they're your employee? And let's look at a case that's a little bit interesting about this. So the general rule is that a volunteer is not your employee. Okay, but this Morrow versus Red Cross case, which was decided in 2019, is kind of interesting. Morrow was an employee of a company called Restoration Company. So I think she did uh, something to do with uh, construction. And she was a wonderful person, and her employer was wonderful as well. And they said that, hey, if you're an employee and you want to uh, work someplace as a volunteer, in this case, she worked as a volunteer community ambassador, we will pay you your regular salary while you go and do your volunteer work. It's pretty nice. Uh, I certainly don't offer that uh, uh, benefit to my employees. Hey, go work somewhere else and I'll pay you to do it. I, I really couldn't afford to do that. Uh, but this company did that. So they were paying her to work somewhere else. Uh, and in this case, she was choosing to volunteer for the Red Cross. Again, very nice, uh, very charitable minded and obviously very civic minded of this company as well. But she got injured uh, while working for the Red Cross uh, in that capacity. Um, and she had a significant hand injury while she was working there. So she brought a workers' compensation claim uh, versus the Red Cross saying, hey, I was working for you, but I was paid uh, to do that. And saying, hey, you, you now owe me workers' compensation. Uh, Red Cross raised the defense of, nope, you're a volunteer. And again, her argument was, yeah, except for I was being paid, maybe not by you, but by somebody to work here. Uh, so this is an interesting case, and it went all the way up to the uh, New York Appellate Division. And the appellate division came back and said, you know, sorry, you're volunteering. It doesn't matter that someone else is paying you or compensating for you for your time. You don't have a workers' compensation claim against that company that you're volunteering for. Okay, so uh, that's a situation in which they found her to be a volunteer and therefore not entitled to workers' compensation. Now, this case isn't as narrow as it seems, and it's applicable to a lot of situations. We've got a lot of situations uh, that I've seen, we defend cases involving firefighters and police, where the firefighters, for example, are doing a fundraiser on the weekend, or they're playing in a charity softball game, and they're not getting paid, but hey, that thing that they're doing, it is generating money actually for their employer, which might be their fire company or their uh, volunteer fire uh, ambulance department or something like that. Uh, those cases have also come out that those are volunteer activities and any injuries arising therefrom would not be compensable under the New York workers' compensation law. All right, let's on to our next topic, which is dual employment. So lots of circumstances where there's dual employment. Uh, many employees right now are um, employees of PEO, uh, professional employer organizations. And that's where you know you're basically uh, leasing out your own employees from another entity, which is going to take care of maybe HR and insurances and payroll functions for you. Very common. Another area we see this is in contractors and subcontractors, where a subcontractor's employees might be getting ordered around or directed at the workplace uh, and controlled at the workplace by the contractor. New York law does recognize that two different employers could employ the same person at the same time. And so you have to be mindful of that. Now, in the context of the PEO, the Professional Employers Organization, 
where the company, uh, the leasing company, is essentially attempting to outsource the HR and outsource the payroll issues. Generally speaking, you're going to see a, a contract between those two entities, the actual employer and the PEO, in which the PEO is saying, hey, look, I'm providing this employee, you're paying me uh, a fee for it, and I will secure workers' compensation coverage and make sure that you're identified as either an additional insured uh, or a, a fictional business entity name under that policy so that you're covered. So don't worry. So generally speaking, that is going to be resolved contractually. Where it gets a little thornier is the contractor-subcontractor issue. Now, in New York, if the subcontractor does not have workers' compensation coverage, uh, coverage for that employee travels up the chain to the next higher level uh, general contractor who's working on that same project. So that's how that would generally get worked out. All right. Next topic that we see frequently is independent contractors. And we all know that they exist, right? They, they, they're theoretically a thing. Uh, but they're a little bit like a unicorn. Everybody knows what a unicorn looks like, but no one's ever seen a unicorn. That's how the workers' compensation judges in New York approach independent contractors. They really think, hey, uh, almost no one is going to pass uh, all of the tests required to demonstrate that you're an independent contractor. So here are the things that we need to uh, argue or show or demonstrate or prove uh, in order to prevail on a defense that the claimant is not our employee, but instead is an independent contractor. So the first thing is we have to show that we have no right to control or direct them, okay? Uh, that's very uh, straightforward. We literally cannot tell them uh, how to go about their daily work, and we have to have no ability to either hire or fire them. Now, this is very big and broad, uh, and you'll discover that this is generally where the inquiry ends. Next, um, we have to have a business that is uh, the, the business, that the thing that they're doing has to be different than the general business of the employer that they allegedly worked for. So uh, the circumstance where the company is a landscaping company and they uh, are alleging that all the employees are independent contractors, uh, but they're do at the time of the injury, they're all doing work that is seems like landscaping work, right? We're cleaning up debris, we're doing outdoor laboring work. It's all going to be found to be the same business because they're really um, furthering the business of the alleged general employer. Uh, and in that case, it's not going to pass the test. The next is, do they have a different business entity? <clears throat> Does this alleged independent contractor actually hold themselves out as their own company? Do they have a business card? Do they have a truck with their own name on it? Are they wearing their own uniform or are they wearing the uniform of the alleged general employer, right? So we're going to want to look to some of the basic indicia of, hey, are they even holding themselves? Do they have a website? Do they have an Instagram page? Do they look like a legit business? Are there any ads? Is there anything that they can point, that we could point to and say, hey, look, this handyman didn't was not employed uh, by the condominium association. Look, he had his own handyman business. He had his own truck. He was, you know, serving many, many different uh, condominium associations. That's what we're really going to want to look for, that the, the two businesses are truly distinct from each other. The next thing is, uh, who controls the method of work? You know, an expert independent contractor or, uh, is someone who comes in, they know their business, they are going to bring their own tools, they might have specialized tools or specialized knowledge, um, they are going to bring maybe their own materials or have their own materials delivered, um, and again, there's going to be something distinct about the work they're doing than the work of the alleged general employer. Next. Do they have their own workers' compensation insurance? And this was not required by a statute or case law, but it, it really is something that we want to point to and we want to point out that this person really is an independent contractor. In the over-the-road trucking context or delivery context, I want to know, hey, do they have their own DOT number? 
Do they have their own uh, bill of lading that they're operating under? Do they have their own workers' compensation coverage? And sometimes they won't, but they might have an occupational accident policy, which I can go and argue to the judge of compensation is essentially the same thing as a workers' compensation policy. So do they have those things? Now, if I can demonstrate these factors, then I'm going to do uh, a good job of proving to the judge of compensation, hey, this person really is an independent contractor. They really are doing work that's distinct from the work of the alleged employer. Look, they have their own insurance coverage, which again, that's an important factor for a judge of compensation because they never want anybody to be uncovered or not have coverage for their workers' compensation injury. So those are the things that they're gonna, they're gonna really look at. All right, okay, let's jump in now. Um, I hope by now you've had a chance to type in your questions for me. It makes it a lot more fun for me and hopefully more fun for you. I'm gonna jump over to our live question and answer section and I'm gonna open up uh, the questions tab and hopefully there are uh, some good questions in here. So let's take a look. All right. Okay. First question here, and it's an off-topic question. All right, I love those. those. Those are fun for me. So Greg O says, Greg, this one's off-topic. The treating medical doctor has the claimant at temporary total disability. The IME doctor has the claimant at partial, uh, temporary partial disability. Workers' comp splits the difference but finds a temporary partial disability. Can we pursue labor market attachment? Does the matter if the claimant is still an employee? All right, Greg, off topic, but I don't care. Those are fun. That's what makes this fun. Yes, you can absolutely produce, uh, be going after labor market. I think that's what you got left, right? Uh, you've got an IME who probably says ready for the Olympics. They're fine. They've got a treating doctor who says, I can't believe this poor disabled person was able to wheel them in here today. What a hero, right? You've got that distinction. The judge of compensation called it somewhere in the middle. That's great. You did great. And the reason you did great is you got that at something less than totally disabled. And if it's after June of 2021, which is when the board stops suspending the labor market defense, you can now raise labor market attachment. And I think best practice would be as soon as a judge finds a disability of anything less than total, and remember, that was your goal, that was your short-term strategy, um, then you should raise labor market attachment and immediately say, judge, please now set this down for a hearing. Thank you for finding TPD, that's great, judge. Set this down for a hearing right now. Let's come back in 30 days, give them a chance to go out and look for a job within their restrictions, let them show their labor market attachment, let them do those things. But judge, it's really, we need to come back in a short period of time uh, and see if we can, uh, find out if they really are doing a reasonable search, right? So I think that's your next step. Now, you've also said to me, hey, Greg, this person might still work for us. That's great. Do we have accommodated or light duty work we can offer? If not, that's fine. They've got to go to the market and find a job within their restrictions, okay? Uh, by the way, this is probably the best market in human history for a less than totally disabled person to be looking for a work from home or an answering the phone or a light duty position. I know every single employer that I'm talking to and I talk to dozens of employers every week uh, through my work are saying we're desperate for people, we're looking for people, we need people, right? So this should be a slam dunk for you, Greg. All right, next. Anne asked me the question, Greg, how can you successfully dent a retirement claim from a sole proprietor? All right, so good question because it's tough, right? Particularly the unwitnessed sole proprietor loss. I think you've got to do all your normal stuff in order to look into that kind of case, and I'll talk about that in a second. 
but really I want us to have that red flag going on. You know, the sole proprietor, you know, in the New Jersey context, it's the gas station owner. Um, in the New York context, it's the small uh, little retail shop, the little corner store shop that I really want us to be very thoughtful about when those cases come in. You know, we're typically thinking about unsophisticated risk. You're thinking about someone who maybe doesn't have a great uh, safety program in place. You know, they might not even have video inside their location. Okay, so it's going to be a little tougher, but I want those red flags going off. Like, wait, this is strange. This person was near retirement. They were contemplating selling their business. In the last couple of years, they put themselves on their workers' comp policy. Why? That's strange. Why would they incur that cost? Um, what other avenues can we look into? And, and those are cases where I would probably be saying to you, uh, we should be the most aggressive we can in our investigation. And that would be looking at all sources of investigation. I would be really pushing hard maybe thinking about a denial status so that you had a little extra time to look into the case and consider all defenses. Um, all right, Greg asked a question. Second question, this one's on topic. All right, thanks, Greg. He says, Greg, who is normally responsible for the coverage for traveling nurses? Great question. It's whoever employs them, right? Uh, generally speaking, a traveling nurse, if they're, or, or any uh, traveling uh, employee, right? Because there's lots of employees that are, are traveling. I've got marketers, we've got salespeople, inside, outside salespeople doing all sorts of things, doing all sorts of places. Well, generally speaking, just because they're, the nurse is providing services on someone else's location uh, or they're traveling from location to location, generally speaking, it's going to be the director employer. And particularly where they don't have any regular place of employment, they're going to be covered portal to portal by their direct employer. Um, Colin asks the question, Colin says, hey Greg, I'm interested in those sole proprietor cases. Greg, for those sole proprietors who try using workers' compensation as their retirement plan and alleged unwitnessed accident, how successful have carriers been in controverting claims like this? Well, the answer is, I think you, know, I think you and Ann are kind of saying, saying the same thing, like, hey Greg, in the sole proprietor, unwitnessed probably, right, uh, loss, how, aren't these things really tough to defend? And the answer is yes, they are very tough to defend uh, because you might not have any contradicting or contradictory material witness. You might not have a video. I mean, certainly, again, these are the people who know, hey, the video camera is only over here, uh, over the cash register. So if I go and have a slip and fall over there, a slip and fall, see, yeah, slip and fall over there, uh, no one's going to know. Okay, uh, hey, there we go. Uh, that's what they're going to do. Again, those are red flags. Those are the cases you look into. Those are the cases where you're going to go into the ISO. You're going to find every prior. You're going to see what's going on in their household. Um, you know, I've, I had a case, and, and I was talking about this with my partner, Karen Vincent, uh, not too recently, the last two weeks ago, and we were talking about how when we went into the ISO for the claimant, we discovered that their wife also had lots of claims, and it was every other year. So one would have their, you know, workers' cop claim, a uh, year would go by, they'd get their settlement, the other one would have a workers' compensation claim. And when we actually matched up the settlements to the injuries, it was like every other year for a period of 10 years, one of the two of them was collecting a workers' comp settlement. And, you know, those are the things that I would look at and the types of red flags that I would get interested in and really starting to, you know, push her, push a lot harder and using our most aggressive tactics on those types of claimants. All right. Good questions. Good questions. All right. Jim asked me a question here. Hey, could you answer a question relating to the upcoming changes to how the New York Experience Mod is calculated? And he gives me a lot of um, background and detail. Jim, I'm going to call you separately on that one, okay, because that's kind of an in-depth response in this one on calculations. 
Let me see what else we have. Okay, that's our questions. Great, this was fun. Thanks everybody for joining us and for giving us those questions. Um, our next webinar is gonna be uh, on construction claims in New York and my partner Tashia Razul is gonna help us out with that one. In the meantime, if you're interested in that introduction to New York Workers' Compensation Training Course, please let me know. Just send me a quick email saying, Greg, interested, and I'll get information out to you uh, either later on tonight or tomorrow morning. All right, everybody, have a great week, and I'll see you next month.